You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. All right. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 44. Mm. We're up to Genesis 44. We're nearly at the end of, the, of, of Genesis, which I'm I'm like, I'm excited about, but a little bit sad. I'm really enjoying our, this journey that we've been on since last year um, through the book of Genesis. Um, man, we're going to look this morning at something which is actually connected to what Amy has just been sharing, maybe with just slightly different words around it. Um, and that is the topic of repentance. How many of you know that word, repentance? Do you know what it is? It's, it's not a word we use a lot outside of like church settings or outside of talking about the Bible or Christian faith. And I think there's a lot, some of us have some misunderstandings of what it is. We think it's something different than what the Bible actually says. A lot of us think that repentance is something that we do one time. It's something that happens once. It's a, it's a one-off. It's when I first became a Christian. When I first said no to the world and yes to Jesus. No to sin and yes to holiness or something like that. And, and that is part of it. That is part of it. But if you actually study what the Bible and the New Testament says about repentance, it's not something that happens just once. It's a, it's a lifelong journey of saying yes to God, of trusting him, of trusting his wisdom, of trusting his goodness, and renouncing sin, the things that are less good, and things that are bad. It's a lifelong journey. It's something that we'll be doing again and again from the moment we first believe the gospel of God's grace in Jesus until the moment we actually lock eyes with him in paradise. So two reasons I want to talk about repentance this morning. Number one, because it's in the text that we're going to look at in Genesis 44. Um, we see this beautiful uh, scene, this play out of, of, uh, with Joseph's brothers repenting completely changing from how we first were introduced to them back in chapter 37. God has done something incredible in their lives, and we're going to see it play out today. So that's one reason we're going to, that's one reason I want to share this. The, the picture of repentance here, I think, is probably one of the high watermarks in all of the Old Testament in terms of looking at repentance, at the transformation in, in a person's life. I think this story that we're going to read today is only topped maybe by the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament. So, so we're going to get there in just a minute. But the second reason I want to talk about repentance this morning is that I don't think in the church today we talk about it enough. And that has consequences. If you look in the book of Acts, one of the very first Christian sermons, probably the very first Christian sermon ever delivered by Peter, um, he was explaining the meaning of the cross. Why did Jesus have to die? And then he comes to this climax moment in his sermon, and he says, not only did Jesus die, the Son of God, the Messiah, not only did he die, but you who are listening to me, you killed him. You are responsible for the death of the Messiah, the death of the one that you are waiting for, the death of your Savior. You are responsible. And the people listening, the men and women say, what? are we going to do? It says they were cut to the heart by the Spirit of God as they listened to Peter's sermon. What must we do? And here's what Peter says. Here's what Peter says. He says, repent and be baptized, each one of you, 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The very first Christian sermon gives the very first application, the very first command, and it's to repent. It's the first order of business. And I wonder how many of you have ever sat in a sermon or across the table having coffee with someone where someone has said to you, brother, sister, you need to repent of your sin. How many of you have ever been on the other side of that coin in conversation where you've said to someone with love, I really think you need to repent of that thought or of that action or that attitude. We don't use the word a lot, and, and there's probably reasons for that. One, because it's a word that, it's a, like I said, it's a churchy word that we don't, some people, we, we just don't know what it means, and we don't want to be confusing. We don't want to sound weird. We don't want to be like the, you know, the guy with the loudspeaker down, you know, shouting at people on the street corner. And, 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 and yet, unfortunately, when we give up that word and give up calling people to repentance in the church or in personal conversations, we end up sort of unintentionally giving the impression that God does not care about sin all that much. But see, the cross doesn't mean that God no longer cares about sin. If God didn't care about sin, the cross would not have been necessary. And the gospel would not be good news. And let me tell you this. The, the, the call to repent is part and parcel of the good news. It is the pathway to freedom and life and joy and reunion and reconciliation. And we're going to look at that in the story today. Genesis 44 and 45 is the climax of the Joseph story, but it's also a picture of repentance in three steps or three parts. And here they are. So repentance starts with confessing or owning your sin. That's how it starts. It continues then by renouncing or turning from your sin. And then it finishes with, and this is the beautiful part, receiving God's grace. So repentance is this. Confess your sin, renounce your sin, and receive God's grace. Let me pray for us this morning again as we get into the text this morning. Father, we need you. We need your Holy Spirit to um, shine a light on these words of the Bible and shine a light on our hearts that we might better understand you, that we might understand your word, that we might understand repentance. And by understanding it, that we might practice it. And by practicing it, that we might receive the life and the joy that is ours in Christ. And we ask that you would do this now for us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm reading in Genesis chapter 44. I'm going to read this in three sections. They're, they're fairly long, but it's important. I want to read all, all every word of the scripture that's there for our joy and our, and our benefit. So starting in 44 verse 1, Joseph commanded his steward, fill the men's bags with as much food as they can carry and put each one's silver at the top of his bag. Put my cup, the silver one, at the top of the youngest one's bag along with the silver for his grain. So he did as Joseph told him. 
At morning light, the men were sent off with their donkeys. They'd not gone very far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, get up, pursue the men, and when you overtake them, say this to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Isn't this the cup that my master drinks from and uses for divination? What you have done is wrong. When he overtook them, he said these words to them, and they said to him, why does my Lord say these things? Your servants could not possibly do such a thing. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found in the top of our bags. How could we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If it is found with one of us, your servants, he must die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. The steward replied, what you've said is right, but only the one who is found to have it will be my slave. The rest of you will be blameless. So each one quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. The steward searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each one loaded his donkey and returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers reached Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell to the ground before him. What have you done? Joseph said to them. Didn't you know that a man like me could uncover the truth by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, how can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servant's iniquity. We are now my Lord's slaves. We and the one in whose possession the cup was found. Then Joseph said, I swear that I will not do this. The man in whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father. All right. If you remember the end of the chapter last week, Joseph had just thrown this massive party for his brothers and him. And at the, at the party, uh, by the end of it, they were relaxed, they were eating, they were drinking, they were at peace. And so now here we are, it's the next morning, the aftermath of the party. But Joseph's got his mind about him, and he is about to lay down the final test, the final test for his brothers to see whether or not they had changed, or whether or not they were the same scoundrels that put him in the pit and sold him to slavery 20 years ago. So he orders his staff, and he's, remember he's the prime minister, so he's got staff, and he orders them to kind of, you know, stitch them up and frame them for a crime they didn't commit. Stick my, my, my precious silver goblet in Benjamin's sack and then pursue them on the road and catch them out. For a very brief moment, as these men, the brothers, set out on their journey, they've got these sacks that are sacks of blessing, sacks of abundance. They're full of grain, more than they could almost possibly carry, and they're silver. They're sent on their way with the contents of those sacks, but it's that blessing, that abundance, that then becomes their undoing. But see, what they're going to end up with by the end of this story is something even better than full sacks of food and lots of money. For the moment, though, when they get caught and are, are, they're accused of being thieves, it's like their worst nightmare has come true. And the first thing they do is they try to defend themselves. They try to justify themselves. No, it can't be true. It can't be. Remember when the money ended up in our sacks before? We brought it back. We're honest. If you find the cup that you're looking for in any of the sacks, that guy, you can, you can kill him, and the rest of us will be your slaves. They were so convinced that this couldn't possibly be true. They're so convinced of their innocence. And you can imagine if this was a movie, kind of the dramatic tension as they go through the sacks and open them up one by one. They start with the oldest and work all the way down, all, through, all 10 of them, until they get to the youngest one. And there, 
in the youngest one. Remember Jacob's favorite, Benjamin. There it is. There it is. And they've just said, they've just said in their own words that the, the one who has the cup, the guilty one, is going to die. And it's Benjamin. Man, that's why you see their response when they see it. What do they do? They tear their clothes. They tear their clothes. It's a sign of grief. It's a sign of mourning. It's a sign of there is nothing that we can do to get out of this, to change the circumstances, what's going on right now. If you remember back to chapter 37, when they threw Joseph in the pit, we learn later that when Joseph was down there in the pit, he was struggling. He was begging for his life. And remember what the brothers were doing as Joseph was screaming in the pit? They were having a meal. They were eating chicken wings by the fire. They did not care. And here they are just picturing Benjamin being executed for something or, 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 or kept in Egypt as a slave. And they're just devastated. You see how God's changed them? Their compassion, they're not just thinking about themselves and their own lives, but they're thinking about others. They're thinking about their dad. They've changed. Verse 15, the brothers are brought back to Joseph's house and they bow before him again, just like in his dream 20 years ago, said that they would. And he scolds them. He talks to them like fools. Didn't you, how, how did you think you could get away with this? How do you think you could rob from the prime minister of Egypt, the one who interprets dreams, the one who practices divination, which is a kind of black magic? Now, I don't think Joseph actually believed in black magic. He's using this as part of the, you know, he's playing a role here. He's, he's in character. Okay, and um, Judah responds in verse 16. Judah, remember, he's the fourth born. He's the leader of the pack. He's the spokesperson. And he says this. He doesn't give, he doesn't say, man, you're, you must be a real good at the divination to have worked this out. No, what does he do? He says, God, God has exposed our iniquity. God has exposed our sin. He's uncovered this. Notice two things in that. Number one, he says, our sin. Judah knows he didn't do it. Remember, they were, they were framed. He knows he didn't do it, but he assumes that his brother did. And, 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 he, and, and, and so what's he doing? When he, he's confessing, he's naming and owning their collective sin. And he's calling it sin. And he says that God has done this. This is the very first time in all of Genesis where any of the sons of Jacob, other than Joseph, has named the name of God. Judah has not, if you remember his behavior with Tamar back in chapter 38, he's not been a moral man at all. And yet here he is saying God has exposed our sin. Not divination. God made this happen. This is, this is a model prayer of confession. It's a model for us. And then he goes on. He says, we are now your slaves. We are now your slaves. So not only has he named the sin, and said, we've done what is wrong, and we are now caught. We're now guilty. He says, we are now your slaves, meaning we ought to be punished. The punishment that we receive is just, is fair. See, that's what confession is. It's to name your sin as sin. Call it what it is. It's not a mistake. It's not an oopsie. It's not just, you know, it's not something that someone else made me do, but it's my sin for which I am guilty, and the punishment that is coming my way is just. That's what confession is. That's what, by the way, you know, if you're ever in a position where you need to 
apologize, not just to God, but to another person. There's a, there's a lot we can learn from this, right? So many people, when we apologize, it's, well, you know, I'm sorry that I hurt you, or I'm sorry that you felt offended by what I did. It's kind of, it's a half apology of like, I'm sort of acknowledging that I did something, but really the main problem is you. You got offended. You were hurt. It's not what I did, it's you. It's your reaction. That's the problem. But see, a genuine Christian apology, a genuine Christian confession is not that. It's just to say, I have sinned. I have done what is wrong. And there are now consequences that are, that are fair and reasonable and just that are going to flow on from what I've done. That's confession. And it's unfortunately pretty rare for people. Um, just this week, as I was preparing for this, I, on my social media feed, came across a video um, of a video of a person that we, most of us, would know and recognize. A celebrity, um, a celebrity Christian, probably the biggest celebrity Christian in all of Australia. And he released a video this week um, talking about not his sin, uh, but his mistakes. Now, I don't know the details, and that's not of, of what went down and didn't get down, go down for this former pastor of a church. That's not the point. When I saw that video, my thought was, this is an enormous misopportunity. This was an opportunity to give glory to the Lord. It was an opportunity to not own mistakes, to not point the finger at those who held me accountable for my mistakes, but it's to be able to name my sin and claim the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus to forgive my sin, that the consequences I receive in this life are, are fair and just and minimal compared to the, what Jesus suffered on my, in my place on the cross. And too often, like what we see in this video, we don't want to talk about our sin. We don't want to confess our sin. We want to talk about our calling, which is what he did. He said, I know my, I'm still got my calling. And I'm like, no, if you don't confess your sin and claim the blood of Jesus for that, you don't have a calling. Your calling as a pastor, your calling as a Christian, my calling is to make Jesus look big. That's it. That's our calling. And you know how we do that? We do that every time we humble ourselves and own our sin. That's how we make Jesus look big. That's how we love people, too. Paul, the biggest, greatest church planner, the most anointed man of God in all of the New Testament, other than Jesus himself, do you know what he called himself? He called himself the foremost of sinners. And that's not just a throwaway line. It wasn't just a humble brag or anything like that. No, he meant it. Because the more he saw the whole and understood the holiness and the goodness and the beauty of God and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the more he understood his unworthiness and how far short he had fallen of God's glory. That is Christian maturity, guys. That's what discipleship does. It gives us a big picture of God and deep conviction of our own sin. That's how we understand how good his love really is for us. And whenever I see Christian leaders miss it and try to hide behind calling rather than embrace humbly confessing sin, it just it breaks my heart because it really is a missed opportunity. And, and it's not just for famous 
Christian pastors as well. It's for all of us. James says it. He says, confess your sin, that you might be healed. It's actually freeing for you and for me when we confess our sin and just claim, just, just hide, not underneath our calling, but hide underneath the blood of Jesus. Let me keep reading. Verse 18. But Judah approached him, Joseph, and said, My Lord, please let your servant speak personally to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, My Lord, we have an elderly father and a younger brother, the child of his old age. The boy's brother is dead. He's the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him to me so that I can see him. But we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. If he were to leave, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, if your younger brother does not come down with you, you will not see me again. This is what happened when we went back to your servant, my father. We reported to him the words of my Lord, but our father said, go again and buy us a little food. We told him, we cannot go down unless our younger brother goes with us. If our younger brother isn't with us, we can't see the man. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know, what my, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One has gone from me. I said he must have been torn to pieces and I've never seen him again. If you also take this one from me and anything happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. So if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up with the boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, If I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. The first step of real God-honoring biblical repentance is confessing your sin. The second step after naming it and accepting the consequences is to renounce your sin. And I want to show you how he does just that here, how Judah does that. He does it on behalf of his brothers. He renounces his own personal complicity, his own personal sin, and their collective sin in a very long speech that I just read. So let me tell you a couple of things that we notice in the speech. First, he's very humble in the way he approaches Joseph. He's not arrogant. He's not assuming at all. On the other hand, he's also very brave. He takes the initiative. He takes the initiative to speak to a man who could have had him executed on the spot. It's such an incredible contrast, again, to how he behaved back in chapter 37. Do you remember Judah's contribution back then? Maybe not. Here's what he said back in chapter 37. Joseph is, remember, he's kind of he's screaming in the pit. He says, what do we gain if we kill him and bury the body? Why not sell him into slavery and then make a little money for our trouble? That was the old Judah. Here's the new Judah. Don't keep Benjamin. Keep me instead. Keep me instead. He's been transformed from a calculating, greedy man to a courageous and humble man. You can see what's motivating him. There's a word in that speech from 18 to 34. There's a word that appears more than any other word 14 times. 
It's the word father. That's what's, that's what's on his heart. He's his dad. He, he cares about his dad. His dad who basically didn't even consider him to be a legitimate son. His dad who did not show love to him, who was not a good father in any, by any definition. And yet, 14 times, his heart is breaking for his dad in this, in this picture. It's, it's something that can only be described as a miracle that God has done in his heart to have this kind of compassion for a man who really didn't deserve it. He's not just begging Judah for his own life. He's begging for the life of Benjamin. He's willing to lay down his life as a substitute in place of Benjamin. He says, I, can be, I will be a slave for the rest of my days if I can spare my father from suffering any more grief. And see, friends, this is true repentance. This is what it looks like. Repentance is not just words. It's not just saying, oh, yeah, I'll do better next time. Repentance is actually taking steps to demonstrate to yourself and to demonstrate to others that you are not the person you once were. God has made a change in you. God's done something. You're, as, as Amy was sharing, the thing, what satisfies you is not the things that used to satisfy you. What now brings you joy is not the things that used to bring you joy. What you're afraid of now is not the things you used to be afraid of. You might, maybe you used to be afraid of missing out, missing the fun. And now you're afraid of not hearing those words from your Father in heaven, well done. See, that's repentance. That's renouncing sin. It's showing the world actively that you have changed what God has done in you even if it costs you everything. Renouncing sin is not easy. I don't want to pretend like it is. Sometimes it feels like dying inside. That's why it's something we do every single day. Jesus told the rich young ruler, remember that? He said, you know, if you want to show the world that you've changed, here's what you do. You sell everything that you've got and give it to the poor and come follow me daily. And he couldn't do it because... What did he really love? He loved his money. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to go through life with one hand than to go into hell with two. Jesus said that. You know, in church, I, I think maybe there have been times in the past when we've been too harsh in, tell, in telling people to renounce their sin or certain sins only and not others. But I don't think that's where we are today. The gospel the gospel is not good news to people who are not keenly aware of their sin and their guilt and their shame. The gospel is not saying you can have your sin and Jesus too. The gospel is faith in Jesus alone. It's joy in Jesus alone. That means getting rid of the other things. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 13. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And see, friends, real repentance, confessing and renouncing sin, it's not the hard slog that the world will tell you it is or even your own heart will tell you it is. Real repentance is the road to life and joy and freedom. That's the only road to life. And Jesus is the one through his spirit who gives us the power to take one more step on that road.
every single day. I'm going to read just the first 15 verses now of, verse, of chapter 45, because I want you to see this. I want you to see the other side of repentance. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants, so he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And also, Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near. I, I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in, these, in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. God has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler over the land of Egypt. Return quickly to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, and your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and all you have, there I will sustain you, for you will be, there will be five more years of famine. Otherwise, you, your household, and everything you have will become destitute. Look, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin can see that I'm the one speaking to you. Tell my father about all my glory in Egypt and about all you've seen, and bring my father here quickly. Then Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin wept on his shoulder. Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. See, I want you to see what happens when we walk the hard road of repentance. When we confess our sin, we don't hide, we don't sidestep, we, we own it, we name it, and then we take steps to renounce it. Grace God's grace comes flooding in. And God's grace is not earned. God's grace floods in whenever we confess how much we need it. God's grace is for moments like these, when we are terrified, when we have come to the end of ourselves, when all we see is our sin and the inevitable consequences. God's grace is for moments like these. Watch what happens with Judy. Joseph is so moved by the speech that he's just made. Because 20 years ago, this guy didn't give a stuff about him. Did not care about anyone but himself. And now he is clearly a changed man. And Joseph sees the love he has and the compassion he has for his dad. It's just oozing from his words. He's moved by his offer to sacrifice himself in place of Benjamin. And he just loses it. He's just weeping. That's what happens. That was, that's what happens. That compassion is the compassion of your Father in heaven whenever you repent. Whenever you and I repent, our Father in heaven has a very, the very same response. Remember what Jesus said. I'm not making this up. Jesus said this. He said, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who what? Who what? Who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. That's what joy looks like. These are the tears of the angels. The tears of your Father in heaven rejoicing over you, overflowing with joy whenever you repent, whenever you confess your sin, whenever you renounce your sin, you see the intimacy of all of it. 
God's not up there going, oh, finally, it took you long enough. No, he is rejoicing over you. Joseph has all the outsiders sent out of the room to reveal his identity, right? This is life in the family of God. This is a family moment. You see how intimate it is. God reveals himself again in that moment is the real source of our joy. He doesn't say, you know, I am Joseph. He says, I am who I am. And I love you. That's, that's what repentance brings into our lives. He says, I'm the one who satisfies. I'm the one you're looking for. The outsiders, they heard all the emotion, but only from a distance. They said, this is, this is the kind of intimate welcome we should receive from God. And what well, we do receive from God, and we should receive from God's people whenever we repent. Because it's the welcome embrace of God himself, whose grace abounds for sinners like us. And see, at first, the brothers are terrified. They're, they, you know, they're still kind of believing in karma. They're thinking, okay, now he's going to get us. Now they, they, he's going to drop the hammer. But Joseph doesn't play, play that game. He doesn't. He says, I'm not into karma. I'm into embrace. Come, come close. Come close. I want you to draw near. Don't be afraid. Don't be, don't be mad at yourselves. You know why? This is because everything that happened, it was God's doing. God did this to save your life, to save our father's life, to save the life of thousands of people because of the famine. God did this. You know, when we go through seasons of suffering, when we don't understand what God's doing, and it's really tough, remember this. Remember how God's providence works. What we see is bad. What we see is hopeless. What we see is empty. What we see is no way out. God says, you are exactly where you are meant to be because this is where my grace is going to be unleashed, right here in this moment. We can't see it. We don't have the bird's eye perspective of our circumstances. It may not be for 20, 40 years. We may never know why, but God does. And this is God's heart. He redeems our worst moments as a part of our plan to save us, to save his people, and to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I mean, what Judah did to Joseph, what the brothers did, was horribly wicked. It was wrong. It was worthy of the eternal death. And yet God, who is rich in mercy, he took Judah's sin he took his sin, guys, and made his sin the means by which his grace is unleashed to the world. Only God can do that. You can have peace with a God like that. You can come close to a God like that who will take your sin, your worst moments, your worst failures, and make that the grounds of his grace. Grace that abounds for sinners like us. See, this chapter closes... With Joseph, he's hugging and kissing each one of his brothers individually, by name. Repentance is what opens the door to restoration. It starts with confession, a real owning of our sin, taking real steps to renounce it. We don't need more mistakes were made, speeches, sorry that you were hurt. That's public relations. Confession is, I was wrong. I accept the blame. What can I do to make this right? That's real confession, and it's the road to life. If there were more churches that did that, 
regularly, the fallout from the abuse scandals would be so much less devastating. If we did that in our relationships, our relationships would see life and, re and, and flourishing and re reconciliation that we never dreamed possible. God, see, God is not into image maintenance with us. If God needs to crush me or humiliate me publicly so that I learn to cling to Christ as my only joy, then he will do it. Not because he hates me, because he loves me. And he will do the same for you. And we will praise him for all of eternity. We've seen this in the series already, how Joseph points to Christ in what we call his passive obedience. Joseph had a lot of stuff that happened to him, and he was faithful in the stuff that happened to him. He did not move. He did not waver. But see, there's another type of Christ in this story. Judah, in his active obedience, became the very first human being in all of history to offer himself as the substitute sacrifice for the sin of someone else. And when he did so, he points forward to Jesus, who did exactly the same thing when he died on the cross. And in fact, Jesus himself, as I think I've pointed out already, does not descend from Joseph. He descends from who? He descends from Judah, through whom the kingly line will come. See, repentance does not lead to death, friends. It leads to life. It leads to life abundant. And this is the way of Christ. So don't be afraid of confessing your sin. Don't be afraid of renouncing your sin and taking steps. Even if we, may, we fail and we stumble and backslide along the way, we have a God who never wavers, who never slumbers, never sleeps, but is always there as a shade at your right hand. Let's come to the table again today, acknowledging our sins and receiving God's grace that abounds for sinners like us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, again for the gospel. Thank you that the gospel is good news for those of us who need it. We need Jesus. We need his mercy. Not because we're just slightly damaged or broken, although many of us, all of us are, but because we are actively responsible for sinning against you, breaking your instructions, chasing after other gods and other loves and other joys instead of you who gives us life and breath in our lungs. And yet, because you are so rich in mercy, you did not leave us to wallow in our sin, but you sent Jesus to pursue us in our sin, and pull us from our sin, that we might be with you forever. God, show us the path of life. Give us thirst and hunger for life, for righteousness, as we come to the table today. We so desperately need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. 
You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.